sharing that. Can you believe that it is almost the end of January? I don't know about you, but I feel like this year is already flying by. I'm still not used to writing 2023, right? I'm still finding myself writing 2022, but like, oh, wait, no, it's 2023. And it's almost the end of January 2023. As we know, February starts on Wednesday, and February is a very short month, so I feel like it's already half the quarter, uh, one, one quarter of the year gone in my mind. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of changes um, that everyone is going through this year. On Monday, some of the children are starting school, starting new grades. Raise your hand if you're starting school on Monday. Yes, yes. Everyone, um, yeah, all the, all the boys here and are starting school on Monday. New grade, new teachers, potentially new classmates. Some of you are starting new jobs this year, new roles. Some of you are new marriages and new babies. Um, some of the babies are growing up, becoming toddlers, going to childcare, experiencing changes of their own. Some of you are new homes, new careers. There's lots of changes and transitions and shifts happening all the time, right? And the question that we have before us is, how do we feel about those changes? Sometimes we might be excited, if, we're, if it's a change that we're looking forward to, um, at the moment we're trying to redecorate our home. We're finally um, changing the cushions. There, it was time. There, was, there were feathers like coming out of the sides that had burst. And so we're like, all right. You know, last week, um, because uh, Micah got injured, we didn't go to Mornington, but instead we went to Ikea, which is just as exciting. <laughs> and we uh, got some new cushions and got some new furniture. And so we're in the process of redecorating our home, which is exciting. But along with the excitement um, and the energy, sometimes the transitions also bring some anxiety and some grief and some stress. After all, transitions mean the loss of something, right? as well as entering something unknown. So how do we navigate these transitions from a Christ-centered worldview? And how can knowing God impact the way that we respond to the many changes in life? And to explore these questions today, I want to look at the life of David, one of the major kings of Israel. Now, for a very long time, scholars questioned the historicity, I cannot say this word, historicity, historic, no, I can't say it. Questions, scholars questioned whether David was a real historic figure uh, because there was no evidence of him in archaeology for a very, very long time. Until 1993, when at the Tel Dan uh, site, archaeological site, they unearthed a fragment of a monument um, because there was an entrance to an old old city gate. And while they were uh, going through those, they found this fragment and there was an inscription mentioning the son of the king of Israel of the house of David. So this was a big archaeological discovery because this monument dated to the 9th century BC, about 200 years after David's rule. And since 1993 and this discovery, there have been other discoveries from Moab and Egypt, all talking about the house of David. Now, David was born around 1,000 years before Jesus um, in the city of Bethlehem. And he was this youngest son of uh, Jesse and his wife. So he had seven older brothers as well as several sisters. 
he was a shepherd boy in charge of watching the, the flock of sheep to make sure that they got their food and their water, to make sure that they were sheltered from the heat and from the predators that tried to eat the sheep. And this was his life, day in and day out, watching over the sheep. And he um, loved music, and so he composed songs, played his harp, right? And that was David, the shepherd boy. Until one day, a messenger from God named uh, Samuel, um, they called messengers prophets, he came to David's home, to Jesse, and said, God has uh, called me here to anoint one of your sons as the future king of Israel. Now, at the time, the king of Israel, his name was Saul, and he was the very first king of Israel. But God was displeased with him because he had made some very bad choices. And so prophet Samuel was sent by God to announce to this household that there was going to be a new king from one of the sons. And so Jesse, you can imagine this proud father, you know, brings out his sons, his, his oldest, his brightest, his, you know, his strongest and one by one, Samuel looks at them and God says, not this one. Nope, not that one. And they go all the way down, the seven brothers, and then Samuel's like, it's none of these. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, I do have my youngest, but he's in charge of the sheep at the moment. And Samuel says, go go get him. So then they send a messenger to go out to David, find him in the fields, watching over the sheep. He says, quickly, go back to the house. Your dad wants you. Prophet Samuel's here. And so David comes, and God says, yep, it's this one. And Samuel anoints David's head with oil and says, you are going to be king of Israel. But here's the thing. God nor Samuel tell David when or how that's going to happen. So he gets anointed that he's going to be the king of Israel, but then he has to go back to the sheep and take care of them. Day after day, week after week, month after month. And his life continues. Even though he knows that this strange day happened in his life, his life as he knows it is continuing, but with this tension now of, well, what, what is my future going to look like? What, when is that going to happen? And he just continues his life as a shepherd until um, there's a battle between the Israelites and the neighboring Philistine uh, nation. And so his older brothers all get, go into battle. And after a while, his father Jesse sends David to go take some food and provisions over to his brothers and to check on them to see how they're going. So because of all this, we think he might have been maybe 18, 19 at this time. He goes over to find his brothers in battle, but they're not fighting. And instead, all the Israelites are cowered together in fear because the Philistine giant Goliath is there insulting the Israelites and their God by saying, have one of your Israelites come and fight me. Right? And no one is willing because Goliath was intimidating. And David hears Goliath insulting them and insulting their God, and he says, hey, why isn't anyone stepping forward? And, you know, news spreads. There's, there's someone who's willing to go fight Goliath. And so King Saul meets David for the first time. And he looks at him and he says, well, you know, you sure you want to do this? And David's like, yeah, the guy is insulting our God. And he says, um, I'll go out, I'll fight him. 
Saul tries to put his armor on David, but David's not used to armor, right? He's a, he's a shepherd. He's never put on armor before. So he says, forget this. I'm just going to go out with my what I know. He'd never sword. He'd never spear. He went out with a slingshot and some stones from the nearby brook. And the story goes that with that slingshot, he conquers Goliath. Now at this point, Saul is quite impressed. And we find out that, um, can I just get the slide um, preference there? That at this point, uh, go, thank you. Saul is so impressed with David. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 and 5, that he kept David with him. So David had come to check on his brothers, but he never goes back home. Saul takes him to the royal courts, did not let him return home to his family. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So David goes from a shepherd boy to being anointed king but not knowing how or when to visiting his brothers, fighting Goliath, being taken to the royal courts, becoming a commander of an army. Right? His life has changed. Now, at first, like I said, Saul was very fond of David. And because David was a very skilled musician, Saul really enjoyed listening to him play. So David used to play the harp and sing for him in the courts. But as David's popularity grew, so did Saul's jealousy. And so then Saul starts hating David. And a couple of times he throws a spear at David while he's playing his harp. and he apologized, oh, I didn't, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> and then he tries to k- kill him in other ways by sending David out on these impossible mis- military campaigns, hoping that the Philistines would kill him. But David always came back and came back with applause from everyone. And Saul's own daughter, Michelle, falls in love with David. And very reluctantly, Saul marries him, her to David. And so David goes from shepherd boy to military commander, to now the king's son-in-law. That's a lot of changes. But Saul's hatred grows more aggressive. And eventually David has to flee for his life. And then for several years, and we don't know exactly how many, but um, based on you know the stories and, and looking at the um, timeline, somewhere between four and seven years, David is a fugitive. Saul is actively hunting him down. And so David has to flee his home, flee his country, hiding in caves, you know, sometimes going into the enemy territory and hiding out there, going anywhere he can possibly go as far away from Saul, who is out to murder him. How did David navigate all these changes in his circumstances? How did David endure all those years of living and an expectation of God fulfilling his purpose for him. When he is sleeping in caves in the dark, afraid to go out in public in case spies tell Saul where he is, how can he at that moment remember that God actually anointed me to be king one day? We get a glimpse of David's inner workings through the book of Psalms. And I'm glad, Estina, that you read a bit of the Psalms to us because we're going to be dwelling a bit in the Psalms. As I said, David was a musician and a lot of the music that he wrote um, were preserved. And unfortunately, we don't have the 
original scores. So we don't know how they sounded, but we have the lyrics um, today in the book of Psalms. So about half of the book of Psalms were written by David out of the 150 chapters. And when you read a psalm, you'll notice that some of them will say in the beginning, there'll be a little caption that says, a psalm of David. And you might even say a psalm of David when he was hiding from Saul or a psalm of David after, you know, um, he had sinned with Bathsheba or, uh, you know, so it gives, sometimes it gives you a little context of when he wrote the song. And of course, his most famous psalm, which we're going to take a, a look at today, is Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23, David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I wonder if David wrote this psalm as he sat on the throne, looking back on the journey that he had been from a shepherd boy to being part of the royal court and being part of the military and, and, and the army and then being in exile all those years and then finally coming to this place where God had called him to be, the fulfillment of God's promise to him. You can see what kept David going as you read this psalm and you reflect on his life and his journey. You see that David had a relationship with God like that of a sheep and a shepherd. Which David understood very well that relationship because he himself had been a shepherd all those years. And a shepherd intentionally and, and carefully take care of their sheep. And, and one of the ways they do that is, you know, when the sheep, um, have eaten, you know, in one area and they have to move on to another area, the shepherd goes ahead to find the best pastures. Not only pastures for them to eat, but pastures for them to then lie down and rest. To, to check to make sure there are no snakes. To check to make sure there are no wolves present. To be able to give them that safe environment for them to, to find their comfort. And then, because sheep, they don't like to drink water from running water, the, the, the shepherd would go to the stream and he would build a dam from the rocks nearby so that they would have a little pool of water from which to drink their water. The shepherd goes out and does this all proactively so that the sheep can come and freely enjoy that space. And when David looked back at his life and, and as he faced the uncertain future, he trusted in God like that sheep does the shepherd, knowing that God was going ahead of him to prepare the way. That God was with him every single step, even through the darkest valley. David knew that in peace as well as pain, in triumph as well as trials, each twist and turn of his life journey that God was always present. Notice that in the in the in the psalm he says 
goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, at this point, what is, what is David talking about, the house of the Lord? Was he talking about the temple? Well, you have to remember that at this point in history, there was no temple. David wanted to build God a temple, and God actually said, no, not you, your son will build it for me. And so there was the, the sanctuary, the tent, yes, but it wasn't a permanent place. It had traveled with the Israelites from place to place. And so when David says, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, it's not talking about the sanctuary that you can go to. He's talking about that experience, that intimacy, that relationship, that worship that he had every time he prayed out, he prayed and he cried out to God. Whether he was in the fields watching the sheep, whether he was in the court singing, singing and, and playing the harp, whether he was out in battle, Right? Fighting the Philistines. Or whether he was in exile, hiding in the caves while Saul and his army were outside. Every step of the way, any time David cried out to God and, 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 and talked with God in prayer and praise, that was where God was. That was the house of the Lord. That was a holy place. And David understood that. We don't have to wait to enter God's presence on Saturdays or in this space, right? The house of the Lord is wherever two or three are gathered together to glorify God, to seek God, to pray and praise together. And you see this theme repeated throughout the book of Psalms. David knew that following God didn't mean that the road was smooth and easy. And he knew that it was a lot of twists and turns. You know, the Bible says that David became king when he was 30 years old. And so we know that from, you know, his late teens until 30, so about 10 years, he's gone through crazy changes in his life. And he's had to navigate them as a young person. And he could have doubted whether God really had, you know, whether Samuel really was speaking truth. He could have doubted whether Samuel was just kind of doing his own thing. He could have doubted whether God actually was going to make him king. He could have questioned God's plan for his life, but instead David said, the Lord is my shepherd, and followed him step by step, bend after bend, even through the valley of the shadow of death. This is Wadi Kelt, which is a deep gorge in the Judean wilderness that stretches from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 35 kilometers. And they say that when you go through this valley, um, it really is a treacherous path. And so this is a possible setting for uh, David's psalm about walking through the darkest valley. And it's also the setting of Jesus' parable a thousand years later when he talked about robbers who attacked a man on their way uh, bet between Jericho and Jerusalem. In the 4th century, a few people built a monastery there. So if you look carefully... There's a building that is built into that into that uh, wilderness, into the ravine. And they believe that this is where Elijah was fed by the ravens. And the monastery from the 4th century sat in ruins for a very long time, until the 1900s when someone actually restored it. And so if you ever travel to this area, you can it's like still a running monastery today where you can go and visit. 
And this monastery and this psalm is there as, as a reminder to us that God is with us even through the darkest parts, of even the most unknown, even the most fearful parts of our lives when we really have no idea what's next. I want to point out that when you look at Psalm 23, David starts out by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, he makes me lie down. He leads me. He refreshes my soul. He guides me. But the moment he walks through that valley of the shadow of death, the pronoun changes from he to you. You are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. right? You anoint my head with oil. Something happens as the speaker is going through that valley experience that the God who was his shepherd becomes more than just a he, becomes a you, becomes his intimate relationship. That oftentimes it's when you're in that dark place and you have no idea what the future holds that you cling on to God. That you discover God and you find out that he's actually present with you through that dark time. And that sometimes he's actually carrying you. And it's that difficulty, that challenge, that trial that actually allows you to then cry out to that God. No longer as just this idea, but as your best friend. The darkest valley is where the sheep experiences darkness to light, death into life. This is a picture that I carry around. Well, I used to carry it around in my wallet, but now I have it on my phone as uh, one of my favorites in my album. And whenever I feel anxious or afraid or lost, I look at this picture and I imagine that I am that lamb. And if you look at this picture, I love this charcoal drawing. Um, I tried to figure out who drew it, but no one really knows. There are initials, but I wasn't able to identify who the original artist was. But I love this drawing, this charcoal drawing, because even though you can't really see Jesus' face, you can tell there's so much tenderness there. And I look at that lamb, and that lamb looks happy. That lamb looks content. That lamb knows it is safe. That lamb is not hungry. It's not thirsty. It is, it is just content and happy and pleased and loved. And then when you look, so you kind of, you know, you, I, my eyes go from Jesus to the lamb and then to Jesus' hand. And you see that nail scar in his hand. And you realize this is how much Jesus loves us, right? That, that, that tenderness and that safety that the lamb gets to experience is because Jesus died for us. It's because Jesus is the ultimate lamb that went through the valley of the shadow of death. And because he went from death into life, he knows exactly how we feel when we are navigating all the twists and turns of life. Because Jesus walked that lonely valley ahead of us. He is the ultimate lamb that went through that experience saying, God is my shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And because he was able to endure, he gives us strength to be able to endure. And so we can know that we are never alone, no matter what changes come. 
and that God has a purpose for our lives because he's ultimately in control of the universe. Now, what does this mean that God is in control of the universe? Now, a theological word for this is called sovereignty. The, the concept, the idea that God has power over his creation. And there are various perspectives about God's sovereignty. So bear with me as I explain briefly um, two main thoughts. So there's Calvinism, started by John Calvin from the 16th century, who believed that God's sovereignty is absolute, that God is timeless, and therefore everything, including whether someone is saved or lost, is predestined. You might have heard that word before. And the idea is that humans cannot change or resist his will. So there is a set destiny. Um, God has a plan set out in stone. And no matter what, that's what's going to happen. So Jacobus Arminius, um, who was, you know, who came a bit after Calvin, disagreed with this. And he started the Arminian, I guess, movement or, or, or theology of, uh, when it comes to God's sovereignty. And he believed that God has given human beings free will to determine their own fate and that God responds and interacts with human choices and actions. Now there are various, um, you know, combinations and um, other, uh, I guess, theologies around this. But these are the two main views of God's sovereignty within the Christian traditions. And so my question to you is, which is it? Does God have a predetermined course for us to follow? And does everything happen the way that God wants it to be? Or do we have choices that impact not only our story, but God's story? And how does answering this question help us navigate the transitions in our lives. On the one hand, right, if everything is predestined and everything uh, happens for a reason, well, there might be some comfort in thinking that, well, if God foreordained it, then it's for a greater purpose and this is just the way it is. And the fact that each of our choices has eternal consequences can be a very mighty burden to carry. So I can see why there might be comfort in thinking that everything is set and we just follow. But the problem is, if God controls everything, and everything is the way it is because God wants it that way, then there is a huge question and problem of suffering. Because there's a lot of suffering in the world. And if this is the way it is, then God's goodness is called into question. How can a good God intentionally put us through so much pain? Calvinists would say, who are we to question God? What does the Bible have to say about free will? What does the Bible have to say about how life works? And when we look at the uh, the course of the stories of the Bible and um, how God interacts with human beings, throughout the Bible, you actually see that God gives humanity choice. From the moment Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden, God comes to them and says, you have a choice to obey or disobey, to eat the fruit or not to eat, the, eat of it. And over and over again, God comes to humanity begging them to make the right choice. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 to 32. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You see God again and again begging the people, right? 
not forcing, but begging people to make the choice to follow him. And I and I love how this passage calls God sovereign Lord. So he is powerful, right? He is the king of the universe, and yet he there he is begging for us to choose him because he doesn't force it upon us. Jesus himself said in John 3.16 that God so loves the world, right? That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. Again, speaking to some cynics, John 7.17, Jesus said, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Jesus says, you have a choice. You can choose to do the will of God, and you can choose not to. So then, are we left to fumble in the dark to make these choices that have, you know, consequences? And I don't know about you, but that completely scares me. I'm a bit of a control freak. And so the idea of things being, um, of me having control, but then my choices then having consequences that are outside of my control. That's a very scary thing to consider. So then are we left to make all these choices on our own and there isn't this plan that is, you know, set out for us? Well, that's not it either. Psalm 119 verse 1 to 5 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light unto my path. You see, God gives us free will. But he doesn't leave us to be lost and to fumble about searching for the, you know, path to take. God, one, gives us clarity by giving us his revealed word of God. And in the word of God, we, we find principles of right and wrong so that we can make right choices. The, the Bible gives us examples of people who have chosen certain paths so we can see the consequences as models and examples and warnings for us. In the word of God, God gives us the, the schematics of the plan of salvation, the big picture, so that we can see through prophecy where we are headed. So that, you know, if you know that the things of this world are not going to last, and you, and you know what will, so that you, you can invest in the things that are eternal. So God gives us the big picture. He gives us examples. He gives us principles so that when we are going through life's choices and we come to major, you know, turns in the road, we can make the choices that are informed by God's word. But not only that, Romans 12:2, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, when you uh, see through the word the principles and, and, the, and the big picture and you all, all that that helps transform your mind, he says, then you can test God's will, right? How do you test it? By living it out, by seeing, is this true? God's word says, do not do not lie, do not steal. So then if we live our lives in integrity, right, and we live in honesty, then we get to test out, well, is this true? That living in such a way actually leads to the to the consequences that God has promised. And by testing out God's will, we get to discover what his will for us is. And he also gives us access to him through prayer. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it reads, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Matthew 7, Jesus said, 
ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. So not only are we are we given a map, right? I see I see um in a way I guess the Bible is a type of map. Not only not only are we given a map, but we're given a compass where we're given we're given the Holy Spirit to guide us as we're as we're navigating life's choices. But not only that, but God says, Hey, I'm going to be with you. You ask me, you talk to me, right? And I'm going to be your personal guide to be there to walk with you through this journey so that every path you take, right, whichever choice you make, I'm there right along with you. Have you ever seen or been in one of these tandem go-karts? We've taken the kids on these before. And the nice thing about these is that there's two seats, two steering wheels, two sets of pedals. And so... The child can drive, but at any point the child is about to crash or you know go away. Of course, you can take over. And um, when we go on these things, and there's like little cars and things that that are similar to this, you know, we give them the freedom. We say, yeah, you go for it. You drive, right? They can go as fast as they want, as slow as they want. They can go left. They can go right. You know, around the course, they can choose a few few paths. But we let them know. But anytime you're scared or you're tired or if you're going to about to crash, mom and dad, we're going to take over. And so then there's great freedom that they have, but also they can feel safe knowing that if I'm in trouble, mom and dad, they've got, they've got this so that they can enjoy the experience. And I kind of pictured this when I think about God and how he works with us in our lives. That he gives us freedom, but he's saying, but I'm going to be right here next to you. So that if you're stuck, if you're about to crash and burn, if you're tired, you let me know and I'm going to take over for you. And the beauty of the Christian experience is that the more we trust in him, the more we can enjoy life's twists and turns and trust, you know, whatever dark tunnels we're going through, that we're going to be okay. Because God is with us. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And it's because of this relationship. It's because of this ongoing surrender. And it's a, it's a process. You know, we don't trust God straight away. We, we trust him more and more. And, but it's because of this relationships that relationship that Romans 8 gives us this promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse gives me so much comfort. Whether as a new mom, you know, navigating. I'll just tell you one thing. When you're a parent, you have no, you could, you could read every parent book and listen to every parent blog and talk to a hundred parents, you will still feel like you have no idea what you're doing. And uh, the reality is you don't because it's a new thing. And it's, this child is different from any other child in the world. And you're a different person than every other person in the world. And, and um, it's a whole navigation where it feels like there is no GPS. <laughs> Marriage, friendships, careers, in all of these things, nothing is going to work out perfectly. Nothing is going to go to plan. 
But the important thing is to remember that you are not alone. And to remember that God is with you every step of the way. It's a bit, you know, corny, but they do say that change is an opportunity, right? Change is a chance. And I want to invite you this week and this year as you're navigating changes and transitions in your life to remember that changes and opportunities for us to experience God as our shepherd, to draw closer to the heartbeat of God, to lean on Him more, to trust Him more, and to let go of that steering wheel and our desire for control more and say, God, I have no idea how this is going to go and I don't know how long I'm going to be in this transition. But God, I trust that you're here with me and I'm going to trust that you will take me to that next place and just give me strength and courage and wisdom to get through this time. And it's my prayer as we discover God's incredible love and grace for us that we will be able to really sing as David did that the Lord is our shepherd and that we can trust in him always. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, whatever changes we're going through this week and this year, whatever anxiety we might feel, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom that we would turn to your word to know what path to take, that we would go to you in prayer and really listen to what you have to say to us. I want to thank you for always being with us through every twist and turn of life and for never giving up on us, even when we do wander off, that your staff is there to bring us back. I want to pray for those who are going through really tough times especially. I pray that through the darkest valley, they will feel your presence carrying them through. And I pray, Lord, that um, all those who are traveling, who are away, who are watching online, listening to the podcast, that they would know that you love them very much and that we would remember that little lamb in your arms and know that you love us more than that. I pray that we would learn to trust in you more and more each day. I pray in your son's name. Amen.